Welcome to One Question with Pastor Adam. And hey, I'm Adam, and I am pastor to believers and to doubters, to unfaithful Christians and to faithful atheists. And friends, Jesus wasn't afraid of questions. And so here at One Question with Pastor Adam, we are going to ask the questions and explore the questions and see if we can come up with some interesting answers. So uh, that's what we are here for. I would love to hear your answers. We are here uh, back live. It's I took a bit of the summer off, so it's good to be back. And uh, it's, what is it, September 15th at the moment. And uh, summer apparently goes till September 22nd. Did you know this? September 22nd. So I'm early. I'm early. It's not fall yet. So hi, Melanie and Dina. Uh, good to see you both. Um, we are going to uh, explore a question today that a lot of folks have. It comes from Joshua, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of an update uh, on what we're going to be doing in the next couple of weeks. So <laughs> I've been sort of busy planning for the show. Next week, we are going to talk with uh, one of my friends. The next two weeks, we're going to talk with some of my friends. Uh, Tony Bartlett uh, is a friend of mine who has written. This is, you got to have your thinking cap on for this one. Uh, he wrote a book called Signs of Change. You're going to love this subtitle. The Bible's Evolution of Divine Nonviolence. <laughs> How's that for a subtitle? This book goes through I'll just I'll just uh here's the table of contents well why can't I find the table of contents here it is there it is oh oh I missed it okay uh he goes through books in the Old Testament and New Testament and shows this evolutionary process of the Bible revealing that God is nonviolent love so he goes through Exodus Genesis Job uh Isaiah and the suffering servant Ruth, I mean, you sh you should go read Ruth. I'm not going to show it on you, but Ruth uh, is awesome. And you might think about reading the book of Ruth. <laughs> How about that for not shooting on you? So uh, Ruth is just the, the Moabites get a bad reputation in the Bible. Yeah, but guess what? Ruth is a Moabite and she is one of the great heroes of the Bible. So this is like one of the ways in which the Bible uh, subverts itself. Like, uh, you think somebody's an enemy. Well, guess what? They're like, uh, you're supposed to love your enemies because, uh, those that we label our enemies are often like the heroes. Ruth, how about that? So, uh, Daniel, Jonah, Jesus, and Paul. Um, so, uh, join us next week for that conversation with Tony. And then the week after that, we're going to talk with my friend Ramal Toon about his book that's coming out soon on manhood. There's a crisis of manhood. Uh, they're just this toxic masculinity. We need men to be, uh, men like good, good men, right? Uh, can I get an amen in the chat section? There's just a lot of toxic masculinity and a lot of that gets, converged with uh, toxic views of Christianity, Christian nationalism. R Ramal Toon has written a book. It's coming out soon with his son, Jordan Toon. It's called I Wish My Dad, uh, The Power of Vulnerable Conversations Between Fathers and Sons. This I'm excited for this because Ramal is just an amazing, amazing man. And uh, one of the crises crises of manhood is that we aren't taught 
how to be vulnerable where it's supposed to be like invulnerable. And so Ramal is going to help us reclaim some of that vulnerability, especially when it comes to manhood and uh, how we relate to our children. So I uh, got those coming up and uh, some other plans coming up in the near future too. Juan, it's so good to see you, my friend, and Todd, greetings to you. Patty, Angela, Melanie, here we go. Today's question comes from Joshua. And um, Joshua has this question. If I could ask you to speak more on one topic, <laughs> it would be what parts of the Bible are meant to be taken literally, or how do I decide that for myself? Any of you have this same question about the Bible? Uh, what I want you to know is uh, that this question about what parts of the Bible we're supposed to take literally, what parts metaphorically or allegorically, is not a new question. I can't emphasize this enough. Like uh, we've some of us uh, who lean or are more progressive liberal Christians, um, uh, we aren't doing anything new really in asking this really important question. Oftentimes. Uh, more conservative Christians will think that those of us who are asking these kinds of questions about what do we take literally in the Bible, what do we take metaphorically or allegorically, we often get accused of being heretics and trying to do some kind of postmodern liberal interpretation of the Bible when the Bible just says what the Bible says and you're supposed to take it right? It doesn't matter if it makes you uncomfortable. Uh, you're just supposed to interpret it literally. Otherwise, you're going against all of Christian history because all of Christian history took the Bible literally. That, if, if somebody says that to you, uh, you can respond in a number of ways, including, uh, you're wrong. <laughs> uh, people have been asking these questions about what to take literally in the Bible and metaphorically and allegorically for 2,000 years more than for thousands of years. Our Jewish siblings have also struggled with this. Uh, so for more than 2000 years, we have struggled with this. So um, I, you can tell them they're wrong if you want. I don't know. Uh, maybe being a little more gentle than that <laughs> would be good. <laughs> um, you can give them, if somebody comes to you and says, if you're asking these questions, you uh, are doing this uh, heretical postmodern reading of the Bible. And instead of telling them that they're wrong, maybe you could just bring the facts, right? Just tell them the facts of Christian and Jewish interpretation of scripture. And I'm going to give you some of those today. <laughs> this is awesome. So uh, this all comes about one of the big ways that this comes about very early on in Christian history is in uh, the second century. We are talking early 100s uh, with this question. Uh, and you can you can kind of see this question working out in the Bible itself uh, with struggles uh, and arguments within the Bible. And it comes about in the first century. It comes to a head with a man named Marcion. Marcion is a bishop of the early Christian church. He's kind of a big deal. He's got a big following. And he comes up with this question. What do we take literally? And what do we not take literally? Why is Marcion asking this question? 
because of something that is so crucial that the early church picked up, which is this, that God is revealed through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our uh, concrete understanding of who God is. The early church understood, early churches understood, early Christianities understood that Jesus reveals a God who is love, a God who is nonviolent love, a God who is not retributive, but a God who is um, is ultimately uh, is is eternally gift giver, gift giving love. That's who God is. So Marcion asks the question that is the logical question to ask when you have encountered this God revealed through Jesus. So First John, for example, the letter First John says that God is love. It doesn't say God is love and wrath, right? Uh, we add that on. Uh, many Christians add that on to God. Uh, first, John, there are two definitions of God in the New Testament. One is that God is love. The other is that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. These are the two definitions of God that early Christians formulate in response to their to the revelation that they have witnessed in Jesus. It's a it's 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 a radical shift for them to see God the ultimate principle of reality as nonviolent love. So Marcion is shifting in this direction. And what does this shift do for him? It leads him to ask the question that Joshua has asked us today, which is what parts of the Bible in light of Jesus's revelation that God is nonviolent love, what do we do with the violence in the Old Testament and in the New Testament? That's key for Marcion too, because Marcion sees uh, a God revealed in parts of the New Testament as well as violent. And if Jesus reveals a nonviolent God, we have to figure out what to do with those violent passages in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Marcion's, Marcion's um, answer to this is to throw out the Old Testament and to throw out many passages of the New Testament because he thought that they did not, uh, they didn't, they were not consistent with the God revealed through Jesus Christ. So that's that's Marcion's answer to this. The early church ends up saying, well, Jesus quoted quoted the Hebrew scriptures. He was formed by much of the Hebrew scriptures. So we can't throw them out because it's apparent that Jesus respected them and honored them and he uh, formulates them. He's in conversation with them as a good Jewish boy. <laughs> Jesus is in conversation with the scriptures. Uh, so in sometimes he will quote them in order to affirm them, and I'm going to get to that, and sometimes he will quote them in order to shift them, in order to uh, maybe critique them. So we see this in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus quotes scripture 
he quotes Leviticus, Exodus, and Deuteronomy when he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus then says, okay, I'm going to be facetious here. Jesus then says, uh, yeah, you should do that. <laughs> no, he doesn't say that. He says, you have heard it said in Leviticus, ex Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Jesus then says, but we're not doing that anymore. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. In, in essence, he's saying, we're not doing that anymore. Like, uh, that that may have been good for a time. Uh, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, read, read in a positive way, limits revenge. If somebody takes your eye or your tooth, you are only allowed to take their eye and their tooth. You're not allowed to take their eye or their tooth and their hand, right? Uh, it, these laws that Jesus is quoting limits your uh, your ability to get more revenge. But Jesus now says, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. In fact, we're going to go beyond that. Uh, and later on in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that's not quoting the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, uh, but it's just like something that we all uh, probably have said at some time in our life. Like, why would you, why wouldn't you, you should love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus here is leading us uh, to the fulfillment of a law found in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 to 18. The, Jesus is quoting here a passage in Leviticus that says, you shall not hate in your heart any of your kin. So Jesus here, notice, notice that Jesus here quotes parts of the Old Testament sometimes to affirm them and sometimes to uh to go beyond what what they were what some passages were doing and here Jesus is quoting Leviticus chapter 17 or chapter 19 verse 18 uh, that says you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself i am the lord Jesus here takes this love message that he finds in Leviticus, and he tells his people, this is what you are to take literally. This is what God wants you to live out. In fact, Jesus is asked, "What, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And notice Jesus does not say, how dare you ask that question? They are all just as important as every other. They are God-given commandments, and you must fulfill all of them. No, Jesus doesn't say that. In fact, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Here he quotes Deuteronomy. And with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And this, the, this is the greatest, uh, uh, the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So when we're talking about which parts of the Bible to take literally, Marcion knows that we are to take the love commandments literally because that's how Jesus lived his life. 
this nonviolent love that even sought out those we call our enemies. Why? Because for Jesus, uh, he ends the uh, Matthew chapter five by saying, if you live this out, this commandment to radical love, you will be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Now this word perfect, don't get hung up on it. It's the Greek word uh, telos, which means um, purpose uh, or uh, like what's the point of uh, being human. The point of being human is to love like God loves. And Jesus here is saying that God, the father loves you, loves people who are like you and loves them and people who are like them. God's radical universal love is for everybody. Now Marcion gets this and he, then he has this like glitch in his brain <laughs> He's like, he's like, uh, well, what does this mean for all of the other passages in the Bible? Like um, some of the passages in the Old Testament, some of the passages in the New Testament, where God is not shown as being love in the way that Jesus shows us that love is. How does Jesus show us that love is? By going all the way to the cross and refusing to respond to human violence with violence of his own. Why? Because uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, as Gandhi said, is going to leave all of us blind and toothless. Jesus knows this. He wants to stop the, the reciprocity of violence in its tracks. And so instead of responding to human violence with violence of his own, Jesus responds with nonviolent love, forgiveness, the hope of reconciliation. That is what God is like. So Marcion takes that into his understanding of the Bible, and he throws out the Old Testament. He throws out a lot of the New Testament. He's left basically with Luke and some of the writings of Paul. Well, the early church says, you can't do this. Like, you're, you're asking the right question, Marcion, but your answer is, is not right. Uh, we need to hold on to the Hebrew scriptures. They in some way form Jesus, and Jesus helps us interpret those Hebrew scriptures and uh, and violence throughout the Bible. Now, here uh, is the alternative that the early church gave to Marcion. It's found uh, throughout the early church, but it culminates in this guy named Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory of Nyssa is known. This is going to. Uh, surprise you and possibly blow your mind. <laughs> Gregory of Nyssa is known as like the Orthodox of Orthodox theologians. He is known as Gregory the Great. Uh, he is the one who says about the Council of Nicaea, yep, this this is it. This, this is good stuff. Uh, and what I'm about to tell you may blow your mind because he knows that Marcion is asking the right question, maybe not coming up with the right answer. But what Gregory ends up doing is saying, we have to hold on to the Hebrew scriptures, though they are crucial and important. But there are passages in the Hebrew scriptures that you should not take literally. And those are the passages that go against the, uh, the a literal passage. Uh, if you interpret 
those passages literally, and they take you away from the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, then you have to find a non-literal interpretation of those passages. Oh man, this stuff jazzes me. I'm getting jazzed by it. I hope, you, I hope this is interesting to you. So Gregory of Nyssa writes a book called The Life of Moses. <laughs> oh man, this is awesome. I love it. So in that book, Gregory of Nyssa is troubled by the 10 plagues that God, uh, God uh, puts upon the Egyptian people. Gregory of Nyssa is especially concerned about the 10th plague. Now, does the 10th plague bother you? I hope it does bother you. Like this is, this is, this is nasty stuff. So the 10th plague, if you remember, is uh, where God ends up in the story killing the firstborn of uh, boys of Egypt. God here is like Pharaoh, who in the beginning of the Exodus story tries to kill all of the uh, Hebrew boys, right? Well, now God is just the new Pharaoh who's mean and nasty and wants his will, and he's going to kill uh, infants and firstborns in order to get God's will, right? Uh, if that's how you feel about this story, Gregory of Nyssa is right there with you. Gregory of Nyssa, we're talking fourth century. Uh, the 300s, Gregory of Nyssa is talking like this. He says the God of the uh, 10 plagues, especially the 10th plague, is not a God, is not a good God. And Gregory of Nyssa uh, puts this in the argument that God is good. And now there are some Christians who will say, well, yeah, God is good and we can't impose our our ideas of goodness onto God and whatever the Bible says about God must be good. Even if God is killing children, God has his reasons and you shouldn't question that. If you've been told that, just know that that's BS. Uh, and Gregory of Nyssa, the Orthodox of Orthodox theologians knows that that's BS too. <laughs> 1600 years ago, Gregory of Nyssa is like, that's a bad argument. We know what goodness means. And if goodness if God's idea of goodness is so different from our idea of goodness that God can go around and kill these infants, um, then that's like, that's not a good God. <laughs> that's not a God that we see revealed in Jesus Christ, at least, right? So uh, what does Gregory of Nyssa do? Gregory of Nyssa says this in his uh, book on the life of Moses. He says, the Egyptians act unjustly by enslaving the Hebrew people. That's not good. Uh, they shouldn't have done that, right? And uh, But he says, the Egyptians act unjustly, and in his place is punished his newborn child. So Gregory of Nyssa here is uh, putting forth a literal reading of the 10th plague. Uh, the act of injustice that the he that the uh Egyptian people took against the Hebrew people is an unjust act right and here uh he's saying that that act of injustice by the Hebrew adult men 
is punished on their newborn child who in this newborn child's infancy cannot discern what is good and what is not. His life has no experience of evil for infancy is not capable of passion. He does not know how to distinguish between his right hand and his left hand. The infant lifts his eyes only to his mother's nipple and tears are the sole perceptible sign of his sadness. And if he obtains anything which his nature desires, he signifies his pleasure by smiling. Gregory of Nyssa is like, why are you killing these poor infants? <laughs> That's not just. If such a one now pays the penalty for his father's wickedness, where is justice in that? Where is piety? Where is holiness? Where is Ezekiel who cries, the man who has sinned is the man who must die and a son is not to suffer for the sins of his father? How can history so contradict reason? Notice what Gregory of Nyssa here is saying, that this part of the Bible that is told as a part of history should is is very troubling has it's very very troublesome gregory of nyssa like marcion had the glitch <laughs> gregory of nyssa has the glitch in biblical interpretation of this very violent story a story of injustice a story that shows a god who is not good but a god who is unjust so what does gregory who wants to hold on to these passages do with this story, with these types of stories. Gregory of Nyssa says you, a literal interpretation of this story is not only the worst interpretation of this story, it is an interpretation that is false because it will lead you away from the God, the good God of love and nonviolence revealed in the person Jesus. So how should you interpret it? You should not interpret it literally. You should interpret it allegorically. So what Gregory of Nyssa will end up saying is instead of a literal interpretation of a literal historical event, you should interpret this as uh, something that's happening inside of you. There are forces inside of each of us for Gregory that, uh, that are anti-God. In the story of the Exodus, there are uh, anti-God oppressive figures uh, in the story. Gregory wants us to interpret this allegorically, meaning that there are similar forces inside of each of us, and we have to find ways of quelling those forces. So uh, this, as I explain this to you, the 10th plague is happening inside of us, right? And there are uh, forces inside of us that regenerate themselves. Uh, so uh, Egyptian, uh, in the story, the Egyptian men uh, regenerate themselves into Egyptian boys who grow up to Egyptian men. They're inside of you and they are trying to oppress you. That's the story of the Exodus, the, the Egyptian, the Exodus from Egypt. It's happening inside of you too. So what are the ways in which you can, uh, Gregory would say, kill those impulses, those anti-God forces inside of you uh, so that you can deal with them. That's the allegorical interpretation that Gregory brings forth. 
Uh, I don't know if you like that interpretation. It still has some like violent uh, uh, metaphors in it that don't make me entirely happy, but I find it much better than a literal interpretation. <laughs> so maybe you do too. And if you do, uh, you can go with that. Like, certainly we all have these kinds of forces within us. Uh, we have, we, we absorb uh, anti-God, uh, we absorb hostility, we absorb all of these messages from our culture telling us that we're not good enough, that we're not uh, lovable enough, um, that, that you have to keep up with the rat race in order to be a valued member of our society. Those are all oppressive lies of Egypt. Those are all oppressive lies of Egypt. What are you going to do with those lies? I hope, I hope that Gregory has given us something of value in order to deal with those lies that infect all of us. Uh, so Gregory ends up going even further. I think you're going to love this. I love this. Gregory goes up even further and he says, do not be surprised at all if these things that have been told as history did not happen to the Israelites. So Gregory is going like, I can hear like my uh, evangelical friends saying heresy. <laughs> this is huge heresy stuff today. Like if I were to say, Hey, the, uh, you know, those plagues of Egypt, they didn't really happen. You like if we, Gregory is basically saying, if on the day of resurrection, God gives us all knowledge and we were to find out, oh, that actually didn't happen yet. Yeah, don't be surprised because that's not how God acts in the world. A lot of these stories, I was I was telling my children about this because they were asking about the flood, uh, Noah and the flood. A lot of these stories are told in a way that we take literally today, but in the ancient world, these are like the television shows, the movies of the ancient world. These stories are told for entertainment, not, not necessarily for like historical accuracy. They're told as fictional accounts of, for entertainment, yes, and also for understanding who God is and who humans are. Right. So Gregory would have very would have would be very problem would find a lot of problems with taking the story of Noah and the flood in a literal way as well. Why? Because that God does not coincide with the God revealed through Jesus Christ. Can you imagine Jesus uh, sending like uh, all of like flooding the earth and killing everything in it? If you can't imagine that, that's good. <laughs> Because Jesus wouldn't do that. That is not consistent with the God revealed through Jesus, which is what the early Christians based their theology on, the God revealed through Jesus. So how do you interpret these kinds of stories through the God revealed in Jesus? Well, um, Gregory, uh, I've shown you how he does the 10th plague. Um, it's important, I think, to recognize that Noah and the flood story is in conversation with other flood stories in the ancient world, right? Uh, the ancient Hebrews, when they're 
telling this story or not making it up out of thin air. They've heard the Babylonian flood story, the Assyrian flood story, all of these different flood stories, and they're engaging and telling their own story along with it. In those other stories of the ancient world, uh, they say that humans are too noisy and they the gods aren't allowed to sleep. And so the gods are like, well, we can't sleep, so uh, let's kill off all the humans and start all over. <laughs> now, as somebody who loves sleep and has children who can be a little bit noisy at night, I'm like, nah, I'm I'm a, I'm I'm pretty close to where these gods are. <laughs> That's funny. You can laugh at that. No, uh, I'm I I I fall asleep pretty easily, and I've got a noisemaker. If only those gods had like a white noise machine in their bedrooms, right? Why didn't they think of that? So anyway, uh, the problem in those stories is that, that, they, that humans are too noisy. They're having too many parties and the gods can't sleep. Well, in the Genesis account, Genesis six through nine, what's the problem? Not that humans are too noisy and the gods can't sleep. It's that humans are killing each other. That's the problem. Like in the story, it says that humans are violent, uh, from the very beginning, uh, Unfortunately, 3,000, 2,500 years later, 3,000 years later, we still haven't solved the problem of human violence. We are now at a, uh, a stage where we could potentially rain down cosmic violence upon ourselves, and it has nothing to do with God. It's all human, and we could destroy ourselves, and we are destroying the planet at, at right now. Um, so this warning in genesis that humans are violent and they could end up destroying themselves is as real a warning now as it has ever been uh that is the interpretation of genesis chapters the the flood story that i like not that god is going to flood us with violence but that we are doing a very good job on our own of flooding ourselves with injustice and violence and we had better figure this out or we're going to destroy ourselves. That's the apocalyptic warning of the Bible. And it's as relevant today as it was 2000 years ago. The God of the flood story is not a God that I see in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Humans, <laughs> this is much more a story about what it means to be human uh, uh, more than it is about what it means for God to be God. Now, by the end of the story, God is like, uh, never going to do that again. <laughs> Promise, uh, pinky swear, right? <laughs> With the rainbow, not going to do that again. Um, so it it could be that this story that they are telling, I think, as entertainment uh, is also has a theological message to it and a human message to it. Humans, we better figure out our violence before it's too late. Uh, and also, what is God doing in the midst of this? God is uh, going through a process of transformation where God sees all the violence and is like, I don't know what to do about this. I'm just going to be violent in return and then kills everybody off and then is like, oh, that was not a good idea. I promise that I will not do that again. Right. So it's kind of like a human for me, it's much more of a human evolution in the understanding of who God is from uh, our understanding of God is, is violent, caught up in our violence. Like if we're violent with one another, God is going to be violent uh, against us. This is the human 
this is the projection that we often uh, make towards God, that God must be like us. Uh, and so we project all of our violence onto God. Uh, we do our violence in the name of God often, where, whereas the story is telling us, yeah, you have a tendency to do that. But by the end of the story, God's not playing that game. <laughs> God's like, my bad, uh, not going to do that again. Here's my rainbow in order to promise that I'm not going to do that again. That's the God. Uh, by the end of the story, that's the God that coincides, uh, that is consistent with the God of that I see revealed in Jesus. So you can do this allegorical interpretation. Uh, you can do a metaphorical interpretation uh, throughout all of these stories in the Bible. There's just, there's another one uh, in Numbers where uh, the Israelites are leaving Egypt. They're camped in the wilderness. They, uh, they do something to make God angry and God sends in a bunch of snakes and bites all of them and uh, kills a bunch of Israelites. Well, Gregory of Nyssa would look at this and be like, uh, that's not consistent with the God of love and forgiveness that we see revealed in Jesus. So what do we do with that? Gregory of Nyssa would say, okay, there are snakes in our lives. There are, we have, we each have these like forces, these snakes inside of us. How are you going to quell those snakes? By the end of uh, that story in numbers, uh, God tells Moses to take a, uh, a stick and hold it up uh, with a snake. And those who have seen the, who, those who have been bitten by the snake and see the snake held up high will be cured. Uh, this is, we, we know that like the poison is often the cure, right? This is medicine. Uh, the, the sign for the medical association is this snake that's held up on the cross, right? So the poison is often the cure. A little bit of, uh, uh, a little bit of the poison will often be the cure. That's what this is getting at. And what is the poison inside? What is the spiritual poison inside of ourselves that we need to cure, that we need to deal with? That's the allegorical interpretation of that story as well. So I hope I'm going to get to some comments and questions here, but I hope that I have at least given you a sense that Joshua, excellent question. And it's a question that many of us have. I hope that I've at least given you a sense that we are not the first people to ask this question. Marcion asked it. Marcion was uh, deemed a heretic because the church was like, we got to keep these passages. Uh, Marcion also had some pretty, uh, pretty wild ideas um, uh, it, that also made him a heretic, including that uh, the God revealed in Jesus is the good high God. And there were other gods uh, who created the evil earth. And so Marcin was like, the earth is evil. That's why there's so much violence uh, in the world. And our job is to escape the uh, evil earth uh, and through some spiritual measures, make it up to God. Well, the early, early church was like, no, the earth is good. The earth is good. And we need to preserve the earth, to love the earth and everything in it because God is love and loves the earth and created it good, Genesis 1. Now, a lot of Christians today actually uh, are a lot more like Marcion than like Orthodox Christianity. Interestingly, they will say that they are Orthodox, but whenever you hear a Christian say that uh, that the 
earth is evil and bad and we have to escape it to get up to heaven somewhere up there uh left behind series anyone you know that they're heretics like sorry i i don't like to label people heretics uh but you know that they are not consistent with 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 historic christianity because historic christianity has always been like the earth is good and we should treat it that way so uh orthodox christianity should look at the uh effects of climate change and global warming and be like uh this is god's good earth and we should care for it and whatever we can do to stop climate change and global warming we should do can i get an amen in the chat section that's orthodox christianity oh my goodness so um i can't believe i'm talking so much about orthodoxy today i hope it's been interesting to you i i always love talking about this so dina's given me an amen awesome uh dina says are we made in god's image only physically or spiritually as well uh that's a great question i think uh oh oh it's a great question I would say both. And um, Dina, that's a that's a really great question. The ancient uh, Hebrew mind, so Jesus, um, the ancient Jewish mind, is not going to separate the physical from the spiritual in that way. Uh, that's much more of a Greco-Roman philosophy move to make this kind of dualistic um uh, separation between the physical and the spiritual. So that's exactly what Marcion does. Like that's the move that, that troubles me a lot about Marcion as well is that he wants to say, uh, the spiritual is good and the physical is bad, something that you need to escape. Um, whereas the divine image for the Hebrew mind is physical and spiritual connected together this is what the incarnation of jesus is all about right like we often treat uh and listen i mean i'm getting older my body's falling apart sometimes i'm just like can i just get rid of this thing <laughs> like i get it like that's uh that's the older i get the more i'm like oh man but um there's like what the bible wants to do is to say that your body is valuable that your body is loved that's that's the move that genesis makes and if christians took that seriously uh we would set up our world in such a way where everybody's body was taken care of why because you are your body is the image of god where everybody would have Healthcare, not just access to healthcare, but everybody would have not just cheap access to healthcare, but everybody would have healthcare. Why? Because your body matters. Like nobody would be living on the street because we would be aware that houseless folk are the closest thing to the image of God that we have in this world. Not the closest thing, but God says, that's my image right there. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25 that nations will be judged by how well they treated the least of these, the poor, because their bodies matter, right? So, um, yeah, uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. Did, uh, Patty asks, did God influence the Bible's writings or was it the interpretation of his followers? I would say yes. <laughs> Yes to both. God 
influenced the Bible's writing. So the the way that I like to look at it is that the people who are writing scripture are are attuned to something bigger than themselves happening in the world. They uh, they you might uh, you might say that they see God working in the world and they're interpreting what God is doing. Um, they're interpreting how God is acting in the world. And my, I think the criteria for Christians, uh, Karl Barth was one of the most important theologians of the 20th century. He's perfectly in line with Gregory of Nyssa when he says that uh, God is revealed concretely through Jesus, right? He doesn't like for Karl Barth, he says that the Bible is not the point. The point of Christianity is not the Bible in and of itself. It's to point beyond itself to the God revealed in Jesus Christ, right? So that's like my criteria for understanding the Bible and when I should take a literal interpretation and when a literal interpretation leads us away from the God revealed in Jesus Christ, the God of love, right? So you have to find a different way to interpret it, just like Gregory of Nyssa is doing. Sometimes um, the biblical authors may have gotten it wrong right like they they may have may have seen like there are passages where um where uh i think it's also in numbers where uh somebody steals a uh a an idol from uh one of the towns that they've conquered and uh they come back and some they they lose a war or something um First of all, like all of those wars and stuff, God's not involved in that, <laughs> right? Why do we know that? Because Jesus, Jesus, Jesus doesn't go to war. Jesus doesn't play those games. Uh, Jesus doesn't kill people. He's like, um, uh, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you in the way that Jesus does it, right? So uh, Gregory of Nyssa would find all kinds of different ways to not take those stories literally. Uh, so anyway, this guy steals like the idol and the, um, they go in search of like who stole the idol and what the family was and stuff. And the earth opens up and swallows them. Right. Uh, really? No, God doesn't do that. Right. So, so that's another story where Gregory of Nyssa would say, don't take this literally find a, a metaphorical or an allegorical way to interpret this passage because it will take you away from the God revealed in Jesus Christ. Now was the author of those, the guy who wrote that down, uh, was he, was he, was that author thinking, okay, uh, you should all take this allegorically or metaphorically. Don't take it literally. I don't know. We don't know that answer, the answer to that question. What we do know is that if those stories make you uncomfortable in the Bible, historical ancient Christianity also finds it uncomfortable and has tools to help us find different non-literal interpretations of those stories. Whew, I love it. So good. <laughs> Asher, watching from Thailand. Welcome. Hey, Leo. Good to see you, my friend. We need to talk soon. Luke, the only Bible verse that has practical value, you can't serve God and money. Yes. That's good. That's good. Uh, Todd, hello. Juan, good to see you again, my friend. Um, let's see. 
Luke says Matthew 6, 24. Yep. Yep. Uh, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and uh, despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Come on. Uh, that's, that's, that is a big uh, criticism of historical Christianity. We have thought that we could serve God and money or that they were the same thing. Um, and Jesus here is um, criticizing that idea. So Luke, thank you for bringing that up. It's perfect. Um, uh, yes, take Matthew 6.24 literally. Uh, Anali, my friend, I took the part of the bread and wine turning into the flesh and blood of Jesus when I was 18. So as a vegetarian, I didn't participate. The priest thought I was mocking him at first. <laughs> but I just tried to follow two believers. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That is so awesome. Um, yeah, I uh I see where you're where you're coming from, Annalie. That's I love it. Um y- yes, you, uh so the the whole point for me of uh communion, no matter how you interpret it, um is to take the life of God inside of yourself, right? Um, whether you whether you have a literal understanding of Jesus's body becoming one with the bread and um, blood becoming one with the wine, or not, uh, or you take it metaphorically or whatever, uh, the whole point of it is to get that get the divine inside of us. That there was uh, one of the ancient formulas for this. Uh, typically today, people will say that Jesus, that God became human in Jesus in order to die on the cross. That's the whole point uh, for a lot of Christians today. That wasn't the point for the early Christians. In fact, uh, the ancient formula for why Jesus be, why God became human in Jesus was not to die on the cross, <laughs> but was uh, God, Athanasius, said that God became human, that humans might become God or God-like, to get the life of God inside of ourselves. And what is that life? It's not to like have superhuman God-like powers unless you think the God, the, the superhero power of God is to love indiscriminately. Uh, and that's, that's, that's God-like powers. That's that's what God, Jesus, is trying to get us caught up in. So uh, that's for me. That's that's the whole point of communion. Tragically, uh, as we know, Christians have uh, killed one another over debates about whether the body and blood were literal or metaphorical. And that's uh, of course when you know that Christianity has got it wrong. So, hi, Luke. Um, Yes, Jesus was a rabble rouser so much so that he drove the tenders in the temple with a whip. Yep, absolutely. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, okay. What else do we got here? How then do you? Uh, oh, Dina, I'm not sure where we're at. How then do you reconcile it? Uh, President Bartlett, Todd. Yes, classic. Love it. Um, you're welcome for speaking on this. Yeah. Um, I think that might have been Heather. Uh, let's see. 
uh, allegorical. Um, sorry, Melanie, I should have I should have tried to explain this earlier. Allegorical, um, just basically, it's it sometimes uh, it, it means like you find characters uh, within the story that you're able to identify with. That's one way of understanding the allegorical interpretation. Uh, so instead of like, um, like oftentimes when Jesus tells a parable, a story, uh, one of the ways um, that you can do an allegorical interpretation is to find yourself in one of the characters. So not to take the parable literally, uh, but to to position yourself in different characters within the story and to see what you can learn uh, as you position yourself in those different characters. So uh, similarly in the flood, uh, you could find yourself uh, in the position of Noah, Noah's family, one of the animals, what would it be like for you uh, in that story? Um, so one of the interpretations that I think it was Martin Luther gave of the flood story was, was to say that the church is like the ark. Oh, this is good. I love this. So the church is like the ark. It is full of stinky, smelly animals. Some of us are tame. Some of us are wild. And how are y'all going to live together? Right. That's that's the non-literal uh, allegorical interpretation story of the flood. We are all living on this ark and it is a mess. It is a show. Right. <laughs> it's all over the place. And how are you going to live together? I mean, that's I, I don't agree with everything Martin Luther said, but that's a good one that I, I dig it. Uh, Dina says a story, a poem, picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a moral or political one. Good, good. That, yeah, that's a great uh, definition of allegory. Karen says it was suggested I also read Old Testament passages. It's good to hear a kind interpretation of serious stuff. I'm finding it difficult to remain positive reading the Old Testament without guidance outside of myself. I'll find a good study guide. Karen, uh, I thank you for saying that. I meant to mention this earlier. There are really good guides out there uh, for how to do this and how to understand the ancient church and how it dealt with these kinds of questions too. I met, I've, I've talked about this a couple of times before on the show. One of the greatest resources today is a two-volume set by Greg Boyd. It is called uh, Crucifixion of the Warrior God. Uh, the subtitle is perfect for you, Karen. It is Interpreting the Old Testament's Violent Portraits of God in Light of the Cross. Uh, it's a two-volume series. Uh, the only thing that I caution about this subtitle and some parts of the book, I love Greg Boyd, um, but uh, even the subtitle makes me a little queasy because the Old Testament does not only have violent portraits of God, the Old Testament has beautiful portraits of God. And as Marcion saw, the New Testament also has violent portraits of God. And as Christians, we need to take responsibility for the New Testament's violent, por uh, violent 
portraits of God, <laughs> just as much as we need to take responsibility for the Old Testament's violent portraits of Baal. Both portrait, both testaments, when they view, when they uh, have violent portraits of God or interpreted in violent ways, should make us uncomfortable. Uh, and there are ways to deal with that in ancient Christianity. So um, he also wrote a smaller volume on this. Greg Boyd did. It is called, it'll come to me, can't remember. But uh, if you want the shorter version, that, that's out there too. Cruciform God, uh, cruc something like that. Anyway, let's keep going. Okay. So uh, thank you for that, Karen. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Patty, you've got, uh, Patty says, yes, you have helped me. I've often believed God did not do all the flooding and plagues. So, uh, Patty, you're not alone. Uh, ancient Christians uh, have thought the same way. So, um, okay. Uh, uh, Jenny, thank you. It's good to see you. Uh, let's see. So if we have, Adina says, so if we have so much potential for violence, does that mean that God does as well? I think um, I think this is where this is where I think Jesus becomes so important for me. Um, if we take uh, one of for progressive Christians uh, when it comes to biblical interpretation, uh, Gregory of Nyssa is the Orthodox Gregory of Nyssa is one of our best friends, uh, and when it comes to the idea of God's violence, I think that. Um, the Council of Nicaea, some of you aren't going to like me for this, maybe, uh, but I think the Council of Nicaea is also one of our best friends. If we're, if, if, if we're looking at the violence of God revealed or that, that is often depicted in scripture, what the Council of Nicaea does for me is to say, here's, here's often how we have been taught about God, that uh, the father is angry and wrathful and violent and may come after you. The son is your friend. Jesus is your friend. God is pissed off, angry all the time. Jesus is your friend who's going to take God's wrath upon himself so that God might love you if you believe certain things, right? That's, that is often the view of God that we are implicitly given. Well, the council of Nicaea uh, is our uh, is one of our best friends for this. Why? Because it says that there is no distinction between the Father and the Son. There's no fundamental distinction between the Father and the Son. The, the Father is of the same substance as the Son. If you look at the Son and you see love uh, and a desire for justice uh, working out in the Son, that's what the father is like too, right? They're the same. It's not as if there's a conflict within God. I have conflicts inside of myself and I need to go see a therapist to deal with those conflicts inside of me. I've got the serpents inside of me. I've got the 10th plague happening inside of me. And I need, I've got those conflicts and those tensions inside of me. So there are Plenty of Christians today who say those tensions of love and wrath are inside of God too. And uh, maybe maybe God needs to see a therapist, right? If that's the case. Well, I don't think that's the case, right? Because what um, what much of Orthodox Christianity has told us, if we're, if we're looking at it 
I think correctly, uh, is that there is no tension within God because as first John tells us, God is light and in him, there is no darkness at all. Oftentimes Christians want to say there's a hidden part of God. There's a dark part of God, like the, the, the part of God that you can't see, which might be God's wrath. No, the new Testament is very clear that everything about God that has been revealed in Jesus maybe everything that you need to know about God has been revealed in Jesus, right? There is no hidden dark side of God somewhere out there that is out to get you. No, God loves you. God is love, according to 1 John. So I think uh, kind of to answer Gina, uh, Dina's question, for me personally, take this as you will, uh, if you want to view God differently, if anybody, right? Like, from the studying that I have done, uh, I have come to the conclusion that God is not violent, that God is the love that pulsates throughout the universe, that seeks just justice through non-violent means uh, to make the world a more just place. I think Martin Luther King Jr. saw this, Gandhi saw this, Jesus saw this. Uh, it's this determination based on love and nonviolence to make the world a more just place. That's what God is like. Humans, I do this too, uh, are the ones who are violent and we tend to project our violence onto God in order to find divine justification to harm, kill other people. Hope that helps. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, oh, Rue, come on now. Okay. Um, let's see. Some believe God, Patty says, some believe God was literally telling us what he did and what we should do. I felt some of it couldn't be literal. Yeah. Uh, Patty, your feelings there are right on target and uh, right in line with historic Christianity. So, um, uh, Dina, so where does uh, evil originate? We are going to have to save that for another time, Dina. <laughs> where does evil originate? Oh, my goodness gracious, Dina. I'm going to write that down. We'll get to that uh, at another time. So, um, but thank you for that. Thank you for being here, everybody. Uh, and uh, we will do this all again next next Thursday uh, as we talk. Dina, the, the, we might bring that up with Tony Bartlett. So uh, Tony's book, Sign, uh, Signs of Change, The Bible's Evolution of Divine Nonviolence. Um, we, may, we may be able to talk with Tony about evil and where that comes from. So that would be good. Um, Laura, let's see. I'm uh, comfortable in discussing the uh, unliteral scripture of the Bible when Jesus spoke in parables. Communion is a metaphor and the earth is not 12,000 years old. Come on. I used to question myself a lot because I couldn't agree with parts and I'm not like others. This was great. Thank you, Laura. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, everybody. Well, uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for watching. If you want to keep up with one question with Pastor Adam, uh, you can do that wherever you're, you listen to podcasts. Uh, I also got a Pastor Adam YouTube channel if you want to watch uh, some of the videos there. Hey, if you would be willing to rate the show on iTunes. If you could do that, I would be so grateful. Um, I, you know, everybody asks for a five-star review. If you could give me five stars, you might think I deserve three or four, 
but I would love a five star review. That would be awesome. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's so good. Okay. Um, anyway, we're going to do this all again next week. So hope you can join me then for signs of change, the Bible's evolution of divine nonviolence. We're going to keep up with some similar themes here. So that'll be fun. Thank you, Joshua, for the question. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Until next time, God be with you, friends. Bye-bye.